And greetings, friends, all around the world. It's great to be with you here in this way for this last great day. I'm sure we've all had a wonderful feast, and God has inspired and used our ministers. We have a wonderful ministerial team. We have a wonderful headquarters team here in Charlotte, and we're very grateful for what all of our people are doing and what all of you are doing in helping build this work and prepare for tomorrow's world. But brethren, now we're here. Almighty God is intervening in human affairs and shaking this world as he said that we would do. Our nations are going down unless the British people and Americans repent. We will go down and God rebukes and chastens every son he loves. He is intervening just as Mr. Armstrong said so many years. The big basic things are happening and they're continuing to happen even as I speak. Now on this last great day, brethren, I want to review with you one of the most magnificent events in all of human history. This inspiring part of God's plan, and boy, it is inspiring, is hidden from the vast majority of humanity. For this last great day helps us truly understand why why men must suffer, why we have to go through the trials and the tests we do as a humanity. Tens of thousands of people dying of starvation in various parts of the world, even as I speak. People are being tortured, raped, beaten, humiliated, and killed right now. All over the world, horrible things are happening, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. We know that. Why the sinking of the Titanic? That old thing was revived again because of the reissue of the movie and the anniversary here several months ago. The Titanic sank, and of course, many good, quote-unquote, men and women died in that sinking. Nice people Why did God allow that to happen? They're gone. But are they really gone forever? They didn't do anything unusually bad. They were just carnal human beings cut off from God. Why the Holocaust? So many Jews, even highly intelligent Jewish scientists and philosophers and doctors and and thinkers have turned away from God because they said, why did God allow the Holocaust? Where was God when six million Jews were butchered, so to speak, in that terrible holocaust. Why? It's hard to understand these things unless you understand this part of God's plan. And brethren, it is magnificent, and we need to be more excited about it and more grateful for it than perhaps we have been. There's nothing like it. The world doesn't get it. It opens our mind to understand many, many things that are happening and have happened. Back in Leviticus 23, as I'm sure we've already reviewed in this feast, but remember it goes through and say these are God's festivals and their seasons, as the King James has it, the annual festivals of God, starting out with the Passover, the first thing in God's plan, the days of unleavened bread, picturing coming out of sin, Pentecost, 50th, we count 50 days, and then God has the feast of first fruits, the first harvest of God, when he begins to call a few of us in the small early spring harvest, so to speak, of souls during this age, indicating even there the great God of the Bible, the true God, the God of creation is not trying to save all the world. As I've said so many times, brethren, if he were trying to do that, he would do it. His name is El Shaddai, God Almighty. He's not saving most of the world. Most of the world is communist or atheist or Islamic or something else. They're not in God's church. We know that. Why is God not trying to save the world? Well, he's working out a great purpose, and these feasts help us understand that the Pentecost is the feast of the first harvest. 
Then in the autumn, you come to the seventh month, the month of perfection or completion. And the first day of the seventh month is the Feast of Trumpets, an alarm of war as all kinds of troubles begin to happen all over the world, as they are indeed beginning to happen even now. Next is the Day of Atonement, the time right after that when the world Christ has come and the world is finally at one with God when Satan is banished. Then you have the Feast of Tabernacles called the Feast of Ingathering in the Old Testament when God finally gathers in the vast majority of humans who are still alive, of course, during the millennium. And the generations of human beings will be born during that time. But that leaves out the people of the Holocaust. That leaves out the people who died in the sinking of the Lusitania, the Titanic, all the other horrible things that have happened down through ages, all the wars, all the disease epidemics, all the other tragedies of mankind. What happens to those innocent people and other people that may not have seemed so innocent but did not understand, were never called, never really understood the Bible never really understood the purpose of human existence. So we have to understand the tremendous meaning of this festival. It is a magnificent festival, brethren, and we do want to understand. So here coming at the end of this Leviticus chapter 23, after describing the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is called elsewhere, the Feast of Engathering, he said in verse 34, Speak to the children of Israel, the 15th day of the seventh month. Follow me here if you have your Bible. Leviticus 23, verse 34. The 15th day shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You'll do no customary work in it. For seven days you'll offer an offering made by fire. We know those things were put on the weekly Sabbath and two offerings, morning and afternoon, put on every day of the week. So those days of the week still exist, don't they? Well, these feasts still exist. These offerings were put on them temporarily, but we keep the festivals, as we've already seen, that they were kept by Christ and by the New Testament church. Then he said, verse 36, on the eighth day, read this carefully, on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire. It is a sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work on it. That mysterious eighth day is mentioned very briefly. What's the meaning of that day? The world has never fully understood, but God's Word makes it very plain. If we study the Bible, if we begin to understand the mind of God, we can see, yes, there is a great period, not just during the Feast of Engathering, when God gathers and everyone's still alive during the millennium, but what happened to all those billions of human beings who've lived and died and never had a chance. We remember the so-called golden verse of the Bible, John 3, 16, God so loved, God is love. He never forgets any human being that has ever been born. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yes, God loves every human being. He wants everyone to be saved, and he is going to save the people who died in the sinking of the Titanic. These precious Jews that died during the Holocaust, made in the image of God. He is going to give them a chance they never had before and all the other people down through time. What's going to happen to Alexander the Great and all the other so-called great men that didn't understand? They were not necessarily more wicked than others. They just were not called of God. What about Galileo who had to stand up against the Catholic hierarchy and proclaim that no, the world was not flat. It was round 
And he was persecuted for that, as we know, back in that time. Was he an evil man? No, just a normal man tried to stand up against error and died for his trouble, so to speak. Nevertheless, God is going to give him an opportunity. What about great men in more, more our age, like Winston Churchill, who helped rally the American British people during the Second World, a great human being, but didn't really understand God. What about Abraham Lincoln? Talked about the Bible, but didn't fully understand it. Other great men and women. What about your dear old Uncle Charlie, who, who was a nice man, but never really understood God? Maybe he smoked tobacco or cussed or whatever. Nice man. What happened to your grandparents, your parents, others who didn't understand? Are they ever going to have a chance that they die? Is that the end? No, it's not the end. We understand this festival is the most magnificent thing you can imagine and what it really means. And so let's go through the Bible about this last great day, the eighth day, the Feast of Tabernacles, as we see in all these passages, lasts for seven days, but there is an eighth day and a great meaning in that. Turn with me now, my friends, back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 in your New Testament here. And in verse 44, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He will be raised up. But, of course, he has to be drawn by God. God called you, probably, or you wouldn't be here. God called me, shook me up by quite a number of events during my early life. So I would be here. He's not done that to everyone else. Is that their fault? No. God does not choose to call them at this time. Turn back to verse 65. Jesus said it again. Therefore, I said to you that no one, that's right, even Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, the great American British leaders, all good human beings and other human beings, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. God is almighty. He could call everyone, but he's not chosen to do that yet. He's letting human beings, as we have seen, go their own way for a period of 6,000 years, trying out their ideas of education, their ideas of human society and business and capitalism and competition, their ideas of religion. And it all turns into death, a destruction, and sorrow. He's letting them learn that they can't do it apart from God. Then he's going to intervene and have 1,000 years to show that his way works. But then what happened to all those people who were back at that time when they were, he were not yet being called, when the earth was not full of the knowledge of the Lord, as it will be during the millennium? They died before the millennium. They're going to be given not a second chance, Oh, it seems like so many Protestant ministers get all upset about that. They say they have love. Well, why are they so mad that God is giving people an opportunity? They call it a second chance. It is not a second chance. It is a first genuine opportunity for human beings made in the image of God to really be called, to really understand the purpose of human existence and have an opportunity to respond when their eyes have been opened by God Almighty and a calling is given to them finally at a later time that is not being given to them now and is not their fault. God is fair, so he has to be give them a chance in order to be fair. And I think we understand that. Turn back to Matthew 13, friends. 
Turn back to Matthew 13, brethren. Notice here in verse 10, the disciples came and said, Why do you speak to the people here in parables? He always spoke to the multitudes in parables. He only revealed the meaning to his own disciples and all these other people hearing in, listening in. They didn't understand. And he answered, I know my old Methodist Sunday school teacher said, well, Jesus just spoke in parables about the parable of the sower and the seed and all this stuff because these were farmers and shepherds and they would understand these agricultural terms. No, he said he spoke in parables so they could not understand, though they would not understand. He answered, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him I will give, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, verse 13. This is Matthew 13, verse 13. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. He spoke so they could not understand. And then the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Remember, brethren, Jesus constantly quoted from the Old Testament and showed by the way he talked clearly that the Old Testament was inspired by God. Inspired by God, all the Bible. He said, as Isaiah, this prophecy is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive, and so on. But he said in verse 16, But blessed are your eyes, he told his disciples, for they will see in your ears, for they will hear. For assuredly I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it. Many of these ancient philosophers and thinkers asked and thought and meditated and tried to understand the meaning of life. They just couldn't do it. God did not open their minds. I know I studied philosophy for one year in Missouri Southern College. I tried to seek out that because I was hearing Mr. Armstrong and I saw that all the ideas in my opinion, and I'm sure my opinion's right, have no question because it was God's opinion. The ideas of Tacitus and Plato and Aristotle and all these great thinkers were a bunch of hooey, <laughs> rubbish, just crazy imaginations of their mind. They didn't understand God was not calling them. Many prophets and wise men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. They were not given that opportunity. Brethren, you and I have that opportunity now, ahead of time. The world does not have that opportunity. So let's not look down on these people in the world. Yes, they make mistakes. But boy, I made mistake after mistake before I was converted, before God called me. And so do these people out there even now. So let's be careful not to look down on them. God has not called them yet. Remember that word? Yet, they're going to be called later and they will join us if their attitudes are right. And the Bible indicates that the vast majority undoubtedly will respond when they're given an opportunity. They will join us in the family of God, the kingdom of the great God forever. And we can love them, share eternity with them, even the great of the world. And it's going to be fun to look forward to seeing Alexander the Great and Napoleon and, of course, the great patriarchs of God, too, but even men in the world like those men and other men like Winston Churchill and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and all the rest of the people we've learned to read about and, and admire, they'll be there 
and the great white throne judgment. And many of us, if we go all out to make it now, now is our chance. We'll be there to help teach them and guide them and get to know them. And they'll bring their strengths into the kingdom of God and be given his spirit. And many of them may do more with the truth once they have it than we have. So we've got to realize that and appreciate that they will have a genuine opportunity later that they're not having now. Notice back in Romans, brethren, the book of Romans chapter 2. I won't read scripture after scripture because many Bible verses indicate directly or indirectly this truth. But it says here in Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. Romans 2 verse 11. No partiality with God. And in Acts 10, of course, Peter said, God is no respecter of persons. If he has no respecter of persons, no partiality, he has to give them a chance. God is fair. He's going to give every human being a chance. And we need to understand God's infinite love. He will never forget any human being, even these little millions of babies that are aborted by their own mothers. They're going to be brought up. And some of these mothers may have to face their own children whom they help murder. And they're going to be, have to repent in a profound way. Every human life is precious to God. He does not forget. So let's understand that God is love. There's no partiality. He gives everyone a genuine opportunity. Let's turn now, if you would, with me back to Second Peter in your New Testament. Second Peter chapter 3. And let's begin here in verse 7. He says, The heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word, the word of God reserved for fire until the day of judgment. There's going to come a day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, Second Peter 3, verse 8, Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So in working out his plan, God has allocated six work days at the days of the week for man to go his own way. The seventh thousand year day is the millennium. That's the Sabbath. That's when the world has rest and God's way permeates the earth and the ocean beds are full as the ocean beds are full of water. So the world will be full of the knowledge of God. And God will call everyone and give everyone who's willing an opportunity at that time. Then we find the utter destruction that takes place in a sense. I'll read about that later. And then finally, the great white throne judgment takes place. So this is what happens. God's plan. Then he says in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. We think God is waiting too long. No, God's in no hurry. He has his timetable I know Mr. Armstrong wanted the end of the work to come about so bad he couldn't stand it. I'm the same way. We all want the end to be right away. But God is giving people enough time, brethren, to burn their fingers. He's giving these nations enough time to finally learn that their way won't work. They're not quite at the end of their rope yet. I think you know that, you people, if you think about it. They're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. So God is not slack concerning his promise, as men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing, notice, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants every human being to finally come to basic understanding and to repentance 
so that he can't shake his fist at God and say, God, why didn't you give me a chance? God will give every human being a genuine opportunity, not a second chance, a first real chance where they are called, where this book does make sense, where they can understand, then they have to make the decision once they have that understanding. And that, of course, is what this day pictures. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So the final thing will come and then the earth will be burned up. But before that, we have the great white throne judgment. Notice now in Second Corinthians, a scripture that often the Protestant ministers pervert when they hear about this plan of God. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes, We then, he and the other ministers, as workers together with him, also plead with you, we're pleading with you, brethren, not to receive the grace of God in vain. So don't take God's truth lightly. For he says, Notice, in an acceptable time I have heard you. He's paraphrasing Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. Look it up. And in the day of salvation I have helped you. But you look it up in the original Hebrew, and in a day of salvation, it is not in the direct article. It is a day of salvation. There is a day of salvation for us now. There's going to be a day of salvation for others during the millennium. And then there will be a day of salvation for those people who have never had a real chance during the great white throne judgment. So don't let anyone pervert that scripture and try to frighten you with that. Behold, now is an accepted time. Behold, is a day of salvation. And that's the way it ought to be translated. It's not the direct article in the Greek here. Look it up and you will see that God's plan is not negated by this one scripture being perverted, of course, in a wrong way. Now notice back in Matthew 11, if you turn back there with me, to chapter 11 of Matthew telling us more about God's love for all humanity. He's going to give everyone a genuine opportunity. He says back in Matthew uh, chapter 11 back here, and let's uh, turn at this point to verse 20. Matthew 11 and verse 20. Uh, He began to upbraid. Jesus Christ began to upbraid the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Because they did not repent. Were they wicked? Yes, but they weren't called. So Christ upbraided them. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, if these same works had been done back there in ancient Tyre and Sidon, these wicked cities, he says, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Oh, really? indicating they didn't understand. They didn't have those works. They didn't have that chance that Christ's people did or the people did when Christ came. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment. I won't read all the scriptures, but several uh, times in the New Testament, this term is mentioned, uh, the day of judgment. And that certainly includes the great white throne judgment. In the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for them than for you. How could it be more tolerable for them if they're all going straight to hell as a lot of the so-called Christians of the world think? No, they're going to have an opportunity at that time. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades or the grave. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, 
even that wicked city of Sodom where the homosexuals were predominant and even tried to rape God's servant Lot. They were really wicked. But Jesus said if they had had the same chance you folks here have, he said, it would have remained until this day. In other words, the people of Sodom would have repented if they'd had a real chance like you guys have had, he told them. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment. There is a day of judgment than for you. And remember, brethren, in the Greek, the word judgment doesn't mean the passing out of a sentence. It can include a time of trial and test and where people are put through an opportunity to do something to see what they will do. So they are going to be given an opportunity during that period of judgment. And it's called the great white throne judgment. And it is a magnificent part of God's plan where these people who lived and died and did not understand in ancient Tyre and Sidon and Egypt and all these other ancient nations and other great men we've read about, as I said, like Napoleon and even men like Alexander the Great and others, they're going to be given a chance they did not have. They did not have their minds opened, but they will be given a chance at that time. Now, uh, he went on in verse 25 here, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. See, the great men of this world, we read about these great thinkers and philosophers and writers today that write all these learned articles. They don't understand and have revealed them to babes. God has revealed these things to us. We're basically the weak of the world. We're middle class or poor people or people that have not been had great ability. We're not the great of the world as a whole. Very few that are great or mighty or noble are called today. If you are, I don't know of any yet, frankly, but if you are, if you are, and more will be as time goes on and the work grows in power, but very few of the great and noble and mighty are called. God calls the weak of the world the people of faith the people that are humble and being willing to listen, you reveal them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son wills to reveal him. You can't know God unless the Son wills to reveal the Father to you. So that's the whole point. God is not trying to call the whole world. He does not do that at this time, but he will give everyone a first opportunity, a genuine opportunity. Brethren, there's hope for many of you. I I had parents when I came into the truth. Finally, my little sister Catherine came in, but my sister Patty never came in. My father and mother never came in. They were good people, nice people, and I loved them. My old Methodist grandmother who taught me by the fire in her house in the wintertime and read me scriptures, very sincere. She helped me much, got me interested in in the Bible and sort of made sense in a sense, her sincerity and dedication. But she didn't really understand that wasn't her fault. You've had relatives, grandparents and uncles and aunts and others, loved ones who've died. They're more unusually evil. Are they gone? No, they're temporarily asleep. And they're going to be resurrected in the great white throne judgment. And they will be given a chance and we will see them again. We will see them again. This is a wonderful thing we're observing today. And we should be happy. We should be thinking about, boy, we have a chance. And we have an opportunity to know the truth, of course. 
that others don't understand. We don't have to worry about these so-called horrifying tragedies. And why did God allow it? Is it all over? No, it is not all over. God's going to push, he say, activate paint file 13. He'll tell some archangel and these people come on up and they will be alive again and be given a genuine opportunity to understand and to act on the truth just as we have. Turn now, if you would, back to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And let's beginning here in verse 11. Jesus tells us here through this writing of John. John wrote, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head was an, were many crowns. He had a name that no one knew. His robe was dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Christ comes to rule the world with a rod of iron as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is coming. And brethren, he is coming soon within the lifetimes, probably most of you. And we could be grateful for that. So then he shows at the end of this chapter how finally after Christ comes, the beast and the false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire. That'll be the end of their little game. They're going to play. They're going to strut around for a short time, but they will be gone. Then in chapter 20, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Satan is put away, bound. He can't deceive the world. So soon after the beginning of the millennium, Satan is bound and unable to hurt people anymore during that time. And of course, it shows how the saints then who had received Christ's uh, uh, mark had not received the mark of the of Satan uh, were there and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years but the rest of the dead notice verse 5 the rest of the dead a little interpolated thought here and that's what it is it is not part of the regular story flow when you put the rest of the Bible together but the rest of the dead who are they did not live again until the thousand years were finished that one statement perhaps ought to be in parentheses. And this is true. Then he continues, this is the final, first resurrection, talking then about when Christ first comes. Blessed is and holy is he uh, who has part in the first resurrection over such that second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. That's our opportunity to help straighten out this world. Then after the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released. Wow, this shows the power of Satan the devil. After 1,000 years of learning the truth under Jesus Christ and the resurrected saints, you'd think that people would absolutely know better. But very quickly he goes out to deceive the nations and gathers them together as the sand of the sea and they come up to fight and God sends fire down from heaven to destroy them. I'll tell you, brethren, Satan is powerful. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. Fight Satan day and night. He never gets tired. And so the devil finally is put in the lake of fire and can't hurt people anymore. Then verse 11, it goes to the end of the age, the very end. Then, verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it who, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead. Here he sees dead people. 
small and great, standing. Dead people don't stand unless what? Unless they are resurrected. So he saw the dead people now resurrected before God and the books were opened. And think about this now, you new brethren out there who haven't heard this, the Greek word here is Biblos and it's talking here that uses the same Greek word, the exact same Greek word that is used for the Bible. In other words, the books of the Bible are opened. They can finally understand this book. They can finally really grasp what is in the pages of this Bible. The books of the Bible were opened and another book, this is not the book of life here at first, it's the Bible. Then another book beside the Bible is opened, which is the book of life. And so they have an understanding of the Bible. Finally, they're able to act on the truth. There's a time of judgment, a time of trial and test. And then at that time, the book of life is also opened. So they have a chance, not a second chance, but a first genuine opportunity to live by every word of God and have Jesus Christ live his life within them through the Holy Spirit, something they've never fully understood. The book of life is opened and the dead were judged according to their works by those things which were written in the books, the Bibles, the Bible. Then the, finally, the sea gives up the dead and Hades of the grave gives up the dead and they, those who still had not accepted the truth, you see, at that point, were judged according to their works. What are your works? It's not just belief in Christ. The devil believes in Christ. The demons believe and tremble. They know there's a real God. But what do you do? What do you do? These people were judged according to their works. They still wouldn't let Christ live in them. They still wouldn't obey God. Then death and hell, those people who were still there, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So that's the very end. But just before that very end, in the third resurrection, which is the resurrection under condemnation, is a second resurrection, a resurrection to be given a genuine opportunity, the great white throne judgment, when everyone who has lived and died and not had a real chance will be given a first, not a second, but a first genuine opportunity to know God and to act on the truth. Now let's turn back to Ezekiel. With that background, we can understand this 37th chapter of Ezekiel better. Turn back to Ezekiel chapter 37. Here the prophet Ezekiel was inspired to look forward to a tremendous thing that's going to happen. He says in Ezekiel 37 verse 1, The hand of the Lord came upon me, brought me down in the spirit of the Lord, set me down in the midst of the valley full of bones. And he saw bone coming with bones, and they were dry bones, and the breath of life came into them. He said, Surely I will cause the breath to enter into you, and you shall live, God told us, told these bones here in verse 5. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the ever-living one, the one with life inherent within himself. Then you'll know who God is. You've never known that before, he's telling them in effect. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, a rattling, bones came together to bone, and did as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them. People were made fully human again, but there was no breath. Then he causes the breath of life to enter them, and they lived so I prophesied as he commanded me, verse 10, and breath came into them and they lived 
and they stood upon their feet an exceeding great army. What is this, an army of angels or demons or what? The Bible interprets the Bible. Here it is, verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, all of Israel, because the vast majority of all the people of America, Britain, the democratic nations of northwestern Europe, and the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of them scattered all over, and the Jews and some of the Levites staying together and being scattered all over too until recently, and part of them are back in the so-called land of Israel. They've been blinded. They don't understand. You go to Tel Aviv, Israel, and you'll see thousands of those Jews out on the beaches, even on God's Sabbath day, drinking and listening to rock music, just like the kids at Santa Monica Beach in California. They don't understand. They're not called. They don't get it. But they will get it when God opens their minds. They're going to come up. These bones are the whole house of Israel who's died and never understood. They will say, as people come up, why will they say this? Because they feel guilty. They'll think, wow, what's going on? I'm afraid I'm going to be going to hell because I got into all kinds of fornication and adultery and drug addiction and drunkenness and lying and cheating and everything else. Our bones are dry. Our hope is lost. We ourselves are cut off. But God says, tell these folks, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and will bring you into the land of Israel. God's going to resurrect the Israelites and bring them back to the land of Israel. But brethren, all of you, please note right now, think this one key, God uses Israel throughout the Bible as a type of the whole world. And there is spiritual Israel, the church today, so all the Gentiles will also be given this opportunity because God is not a respecter of persons. He's using Israel here as a type of what he will do with all humanity as the scriptures back in Revelation point out. All the books will be open to the people at that time, all the people. Then you shall know that I am the eternal when I've opened your graves and brought you up out of your graves. Verse 14, he tells Israel, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. So he'll put his Holy Spirit within all of Israel at that time. The vast majority will repent when they're given an opportunity. They haven't had a real opportunity today. I'll put my spirit in you, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken and performed it. I am the Eternal. Yes, God is great in the right sense of the word. He is love. He will never forget any human being in his image, brethren. And we want to understand his profound love. Okay, let's go now at this point, brethren, to Romans chapter 11, if you would, in your New Testament, Romans 11. And I'm going to be turning at this point uh, to Romans 11 and verse 32. Romans 11 and verse 32. He's been showing how God will give the Jews a chance finally. He's blinded them in the past. And he says in verse 32, Romans 11, For God has committed them all to disobedience. And again, the Jews, the Israelites, are a type of all humanity. He's committed all of us to disobedience. That he, what, might get rid of all of us? No, that he had, might have mercy on all. God loves every human being. It is not willing that any should perish, but that all should repent. As we read back in Second Peter 3, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past 
finding out. God help us to understand the great God who gives us life and breath is guiding the rise and fall of nations. He lets people suffer. He lets nations understand how wrong they've been finally. He'll call each human being in his time. Then they will really understand and be given an opportunity to be fully saved, to be in God's kingdom, God's family forever, and to understand the Bible and to live by it and have his Holy Spirit to help them do that. God is merciful for who's known the mind of the Lord who's become his counselor or who was first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. So we really want to understand the magnificence, brethren, of God's plan. God has loving concern for every human being who has ever been given life. I know I saw a very touching, uh, not a, a film, but kind of a, a documentary about the life of Dwight Eisenhower. I remember it was in the suite in the Regis Hotel in New York. Mr. Armstrong had a suite there, and I was staying there. My wife and I coming back from England, I think. But we saw this film, this documentary, right after President Eisenhower's death. And it showed this great man and all the things he'd been through and all the trials and tests and ups and downs as finally the supreme commander of the greatest human armada of ships and planes and guns in human history, the commander of Overlord, the invasion of Europe at the end of the Second World War, tremendous man, opportunity, great. And it showed him then becoming president of Columbia University, that finally the supreme commander, the allied commander of the NATO forces, and all those things that he was able to go through, and finally then president of the United States and commander-in-chief, and a two-term president, a very honored man. But it showed at the end of his life something I never, never had heard before. He had a boy. He had one son who became Major Eisenhower, but this one little boy had died as a little child. Dwight Eisenhower, supreme commander of the Allied forces and president, never, ever forgot that one little boy. He had that boy's body buried next to him. Will God forget your child who was aborted? Will God forget your child who died at childbirth? Will God forget someone off there somewhere? They're not forgotten by God. God Almighty will bring them back. God is love. He never forgets. He will bring them back. Our God has total understanding. He has total love. He will reach out because he is the father of all humanity by virtue of creation. And he will end up being the spiritual father of the vast majority of us because God is love. Turn to 1 Corinthians now, brethren. 1 Corinthians here in closing. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians in your Bible, and I want to read here chapter 15, and most of you know what that is, of course, the resurrection chapter, as we call it. Excuse me for being emotional. That scene hit me back there when I first saw it. Dwight Eisenhower's unknown son, but not unknown to him, even though he died so many years earlier. 
not unknown to God, who is our ultimate father, and will never forget any of his sons, any of his daughters, ever. And will give each one an opportunity to be a full member of his family, which is based on love and outflowing concern. Back here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49, as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we've all been made like Adam, subject to death. We shall also be in the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We can't inherit the kingdom of God in this human flesh, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We need to think these people that we loved are going to come up again. Many great men and women of the past will come up again and be given a genuine opportunity to be saved for the first time. And that's a wonderful thing we're commemorating, but it all involves each one of us being changed from flesh into spirit, from human into divine, to be made full members of the God family. We need to look forward to that. We need to pray for it, study about it, fast about it, cry out to God, and have that as the overwhelming focus of our lives while we're here. Don't ever forget that, brethren. You are being given an opportunity beyond what most people have ever understood. Most of them will understand, but some of them will have to wait over a thousand years before they understand. Let's be so thankful we're called now. You shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, that trumpet will be coming in the next probably 10 or 15 years. We hope it'll be sooner, but may not be. Could be slightly later. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. Yes, finally, we will be made spirit. And we, all of us, whether alive or dead, we will be raised and we will be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible. This mortal must put on immortality. We are not made immortal souls. We are human now, subject to death. We've got to spend every day of our lives trying to fulfill the purpose for which God put us on this earth. And let's do it joyously. So grateful that God called us ahead of time and get down on our knees every morning and pray to the great God who gives us life and breath. Study this book every day. Drink in of it. Feed on Christ and have Christ living his life within us. Meditate on this book. Fast every month or so if we can. And ask God for strength, for help, for inspiration. And walk with God. Walk with God with all of our hearts. We need to do that and do it joyously and thankfully that we have this opportunity. For this mortal must put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death. No, when they died in the Titanic, when they died at the time of the Holocaust, it was not the end. Death has been swallowed up in victory when the resurrection comes for each generation, for each part of God's plan. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. Sin brings us down like a rattlesnake biting us. Sin, rebellion against God, and the strength of sin is the law. It points out what sin is. But thanks be to God who gives us, we human beings, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It must be through Christ in us. As I've said, brethren, and please always never forget this favorite verse. It's so meaningful. Paul wrote, I'm crucified with Christ Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Does Christ live his life in you through the Holy Spirit? This must be the case. If you're going to be there to meet these people, to meet your loved ones when they come up, Christ must live within you. Many of you do not have that as you should. Don't be afraid. I don't know who you are. I just know human nature. I know how Mr. Armstrong said so many years ago, half of you brethren aren't even converted. And toward the end, he looked out and he said, I don't think that more than a tithe, more than one-tenth of you were fully converted and conquered by God. Think about that, brethren. Be sure you are among the really converted ones for you could say Christ lives in me and really mean it. Your life must be Christ's life so you can be in that resurrection and join these people who will be resurrected then and these people from past ages who will come up and be maybe really zealous once they are given a genuine opportunity as we are now. Let's not take our opportunity for granted. So he tells us we've got to act on it. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. He lives his life in us. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Don't be shaken easily and get your mad, get mad, get your feelings hurt easily. Fall away so easily. Don't do it. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our, that your uh, labor is not in vain in the Lord. So, brethren, we've got to be abounding in the work of the Lord. We have an opportunity now to reach this world, an opportunity to reach out and say, there is a real God. He's working out a great purpose here below. Understand, my fellow Americans, my fellow British, my fellow Canadians, Australians, whoever, reach out and let's all study, pray, walk with God, and ask God to work through us, to empower us, to inspire us, to have an impact on this world out there with all of our hearts. If this work may grow, that we may go forward as the army of God and honor God and prepare for his kingdom in a wonderful way to help these human beings today who will then join with and many of us able to teach these people in tomorrow's world and in the great white throne judgment yet to come. This is a magnificent calling that we've all been given, a magnificent opportunity that we have now to understand. So thanks be to God for his love. Brethren, let us never forget God and his plan as God will never forget us. Walk with God, talk with God, pray for one another, drive carefully as you go home. Each human life is precious and let's go home filled with zeal for the kingdom of God, for the work of God and the opportunity we all have together to be part of the family of God forever.